Yeah, Bliss has been playing The Last of Us on a PlayStation 2. <laughs> <laughs> I found an emulator. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know. Shit. <laughs> I don't do the PlayStationings. I got, I got my Switch and I got the PC and that's, that's it. That's all I can really do. I haven't played a PC game since high school. Hmm. Have you never played Papers, Please? No. Oh my god, download Papers, Please. I'm not kidding. Well, now that I have Windows, I can, but like a lot of those games weren't supported on Mac. So Right. Well, I think you can also get it on the Switch. Trust me, it's very cathartic for when you're thinking about moving to a different country. <laughs> there are two levels of catharsis, and it's just letting everybody through and denying everyone. <laughs> They're both two different types of catharsis that you just need when you're stressing about immigration. Good, uh, good thing. Helpful. So yeah, download papers, please. It'll rock your world. Yay! I will. I'll check it out. Because I know you guys were talking about it before. You, you can know, also just before. download a pirated version for free. That's true. <laughs> it's a very small game that does not take a lot of computing power to run. Yeah, it's like eight bits. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like eight bit games. Okay, so we're gonna talk about Gabby Dunn right. this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Ooh, boy. <laughs> I'll let you start. I'm so excited. So welcome, everybody, to Bliss Fully Aware, the podcast in which three opinionated people discuss what's going on in fandom and fan culture. I am Bliss, and I am joined, as always, by my two lovely co-hosts, Kelsey and Kendra. Hello. Hello. And before we get into anything today... Because the Dune trailer dropped, I thought it would be fun, Kendra, if you gave a little overview of Dune and what to expect. Because, as you may know, I was super, super on drugs when I read Dune. So I don't remember any of it. Yeah, that's okay. I, myself, did not grow up being a Dune fan. I just sort of decided a couple years ago that it was this, like titan of science fiction history that I had not yet read and that I should read it and form an opinion for myself. And so my initial reaction to the trailer is Dune trailer good. It looks very, very promising, I think. Um, the trailer is cut in a very, like, Hollywood blockbuster style. I would be surprised if the final movie is gonna look that Hollywood because... It is directed by Denis Villeneuve, uh, who has not really done that yet, despite having a lot of success with films like Arrival and uh, the Blade Runner sequel. Neither of those films were really Hollywood blockbusters in format. So I have, I, I do believe that this trailer is sort of cut for just like mass audience appeal, and the final film will be pretty different. But yeah, uh, as good as the trailer is, my personal opinion takeaway from Dune was mostly kind of like, meh. Like, <laughs> I think... Oh. Well, when, when was it written? It was written? I am not sure. It was published in 65. And so it was written 
sometime before that. It was actually released in a serialized format first, like in a magazine. Yeah, it was uh, published in sci-fi serial in the 60s, so uh, I would assume that it was written kind of prior to that. I do know, actually, that... Okay, so this is true. Uh, Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, was writing, (laughs) writing basically a paper for the United States Department of Agriculture on sand dune ecology and the the process of using grass and like various kinds of plants to try and stabilize sand dunes. And so he got so fascinated with the ecology of sand dunes for years. He was researching and like fiddling with this paper and rewriting this paper and he never finishes it. And this is apparently what inspires at least the world of Dune. Not the story, one assumes, but at least the (laughs) setting of the planet Arrakis. So, yeah, I guess this idea was, like, cooking in him for a while. Just something he was thinking about while staring at all that sand. Yeah, I mean, my guy loves sand, and he loves to tell you about it in his space messiah book a whole lot. (laughs) And so, yeah, my takeaway of Dune is it's good. It is very much a a product of its time. I can see in it, when I read the book, I can see in it a lot of sci-fi and fantasy tropes and archetypes and foundational sort of precepts of the genre appearing in Dune for the first time. Like, it's very cool to kind of go back and see, oh, that's that's where that started and stuff. And that's that's where it was kind of first, at least got its first sort of, like, mass market appeal, because the book was a bestseller. And I don't... This is my spicy take. This is my hot take. I don't think Dune lives up to its own hype. It is a very good space messiah story. Like, it's very much like there is a chosen one, and he unites all of mankind and he has you know powers that other men don't have and blah 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 he's he's literally the product of like a secret eugenic breeding program and all of this all of this nonsense yeah oh you laugh bliss there's so much eugenics in dune so the book dune is really two books there is a first half of the story and a second half with like a big time skip between the two and you have so i'm gonna very abbreviatedly set up the stakes here so in the history of this world there's something called the butlerian jihad and what that was was a like revolution against a advanced ai what they call thinking machines they don't this very technologically advanced society purposefully like does away with computers and ai and all of that because they don't trust it essentially what it amounts to they don't want computers thinking or deciding things for them so despite having like a spacefaring civilization they have a very modest sort of like all their technology is basically analog almost you could say and so in order to actually transverse like interplanetary and interstellar distances they have this wonderful substance known as the spice and the spice is a drug that gives users such psychedelic preternatural sensory abilities that they are literally able to fold space-time and move spaceships from one point in the galaxy to the other so (laughs) 
That is the premise. The premise is that there is this substance that is so psychedelically powerful that it allows the user to fold space-time and move spaceships. And so, obviously, in a society that is a spacefaring society, this spice substance becomes the most viable substance in the universe because it is what allows interstellar travel. And the spice substance is found only on the planet Arrakis. It is a byproduct of the life cycle of the sandworms. Those massive, very phallic-looking dragons with teeth that you see in in all the movies and all the cover art, all the Dune stuff. It's as it's as much Dune as the Millennium Falcon is Star Wars. So, with that setup, there is a space empire, as there usually is. And the empire has is comprised of like the Imperial family and all of these noble families. And the noble families run planets kind of like they might run kingdoms in like a medieval fantasy. It's very, there's a lot of, like, court intrigue and a lot of, like, underhanded politics and betrayals and all of this. Our main hero is a boy, I think he's 15 at the start of the books, named Paul Atreides from the House of Atreides, who has been granted the planet Arrakis Dune as his holding, basically. And this is... this is Timothy Chalamet? Yes, so... Paul Atreides is played by Timothy Chalamet. His father, Leto Atreides, or Leto, I actually don't know if it's supposed to be pronounced Leto or Leto, is played by Oscar Isaac. So he, his father, Oscar Isaac, is head of the Atreides household at the start of the film and book. They are, they are granted the planet Dune as a holding to run, basically. And this is, like, a, a big conspiracy to overthrow them by their enemies, blah, blah, blah. So that set up is very much kind of like Game of Thronesian or like like a Roman Empire kind of setting. And then towards the second half of the book, things very quickly become like Lawrence of Arabia in space. Because there is that anything more than that, and it's spoilers, but basically your setup is that you have this family taking over this land, this planet, for the Empire that produces this most precious of all substances in the universe and that makes them powerful but also makes them very vulnerable and we have a lovely cast of characters you know doing intrigue and plotting and we get to learn all so much about sand and so the interesting thing i guess about dune is that it's kind of one of the first quote unquote soft science fiction books because a lot of the actual, like, speculative technology or science fiction, like, technologies and space things in the book really aren't too relevant. Like, a lot of them don't make a lot of sense, if you think about it too hard. Mm-hmm. What Herbert's really interested in is crafting cultures and societies and social groups and seeing what would interstellar travel what effect would that have on a society socially or culturally or religiously? Not so much worried about the actual mechanics of interstellar space travel, obviously, because he just, he invents a fix-it drug that you take the drug and you can you can just fold space-time together and it's done. Boom. Don't talk to me about it. Don't bother me. 
<laughs> Thank God we invented the blah blah device. Yeah, it's but in doing that, in like kind of hand waving the faster than light travel, he kind of invents this physical resource of interstellar space travel that people then fight over. There's more where his interest lies. So it's even, I think, sometimes a stretch to call it science fiction. It's a lot more like Star Wars in that it's almost a fantasy set in space. But, you know, nerds really hate it when you call their favorite <laughs> stuff fantasy and not sci-fi. So I would make that argument on another day, maybe when the movie's out and like more people have opinions about it and stuff. But When it's going to be more of a hot take instead of a potential hot take. Yeah, well, here's... Okay, so I'll run down some of the uh, the potential problematic elements of Dune. <laughs> because being being a book written, you know, by a white man in the year 65, uh, there are some. There are genuinely some quote-unquote takes that you can have about Dune. So first off, the really obvious one is the uh, <laughs> the usage of the Arab Bedouin people as a template for the indigenous people of Dune. The indigenous people of Dune are called the Fremen, and they are just heavily, heavily based on the Arab Bedouin people of Arabia, obviously, of the Middle East and Arabia. So much so that they use actual Arab words sometime. Like, they use the oh. word jihad, to describe the revolution in which people, like, revolted against advanced AI. Like, he uses the word jihad in the book to describe that. And I've noticed in the trailer, uh, they have wisely changed that to the word crusade. Which <laughs> is probably wise, because there is a lot of baggage around the word jihad now in Western English-speaking societies that there wasn't in the year 1965. I think that is a wise change. Like, I'm not going to say that there wasn't racism towards Arab peoples in the 60s, but there is definitely more now. Oh, yeah. So, without spoiling too much, Paul, young, baby, white, Timothy Chalamet, eventually becomes, like, the Dances with Wolves messiah of the Fremen people. <laughs> and so I, I should say that in the book, these people are not described as being non-white. In fact, a few of them are described as being light-skinned, as having quote-unquote white features. In the movie, it appears that they have cast them entirely with non-white actors, while, oh. <laughs> while the imperial family, at least uh, Paul and his mother, Jessica, are both played by white actors. Oscar Isaac is Latino, but there there is definitely now a white messiah image where there, there wasn't necessarily one as explicitly in the book. Mm -hmm. It was still very much a, like, imperial colonizer messiah sort of savior narrative, but it wasn't also racially coded, which it now sort of is. So yeah, there is there is that. There, I know that there are already people, you know, canceling Dune as it were, <laughs> like, they, like they have a prayer to cancel the only movie that maybe anyone's going to see this year. But yes, just simply because Herbert used a lot of Islam and Arabic sort of words and imagery and all of this stuff when when inventing this culture of, of people, and then has an unrelated white guy come in and master their culture for them. 
thanks, white man. <laughs> yeah, and, and I do have to say, like, it was not so ex- explicitly racial in the book because it's sort of implied that everyone is white, which is not great, but also doesn't have this white man's burden element to the narrative, whereas mm-hmm. it now very much does. So was that an improvement to add people of color while simultaneously casting them in this sort of indigenous role? Like, it's not it's not across the board. Like, they have Jason Momoa playing Duncan Idaho, everyone's favorite character from Dune, a character so popular that, spoiler, he dies in the book, but he was so popular that basically weird resurrected clones of him just keep coming back for every single sequel in the books. I'm pretty sure, actually... He is the only character to appear in every Dune book. Oh, so he's that popular. Yes. Like, he <laughs> is everyone's absolute fave. And when they cast Jason Momoa as him, I was like, that's absolutely perfect, because everyone's going to want to see Jason Momoa in all, in all the Dune movies. He looks very lovable. Yeah, whether he's a resurrected clone or not. Like, So there is that. Secondly, there is um, some not-so-great portrayals of women in Dune in a much more subtle way, I will say. But for instance, uh, there is a group of women who are like quasi-nuns, quasi-political figures called uh, the Bene Gesserit. The long story short is that they, for thousands of years, have been involved in a eugenics program basically to breed this like superhuman called the Kwisatz Haderach. That is what they call it. There is no non-stupid word for it. That is just the made-up science fiction word. So, they they have been doing millennia of selective breeding to produce this messiah figure. So, one of these women is also the concubine of Oscar Isaac of Duke Leto Atreides. They are, like truly in love like they well it's a world where like you know he would have to marry for political advantage but it would be very expected of him to like have a concubine who has like an emotional relationship with and that wouldn't be unusual or anything (laughs) yeah so he at the beginning of the book he is unmarried and paul is their child so he is as of now the only heir to this family and she is one of these people these bene gesserets who basically because she loves Leto Atreides so much uh, decides to bear him a son, whereas she was instructed by her order to bear him only daughters because there's a stupid prophecy about men being born to the Bene Gesserit, whatever. And so there's, yeah, there's a lot of these like women and their reproductive capabilities are sort of the extent of their usage in the books. Um, also, women are sneaky and lie a lot. Them's just facts. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as blatant as the stuff that you could say about colonialism or about racism, but 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 it's there, and you know that I think could very much be more easily updated because it's not quite so foundational to the story as like Paul being you know the Messiah, <laughs> which is quite quite literally the point of the story. The, and there is like mistrust of this group of women but also this group of women are very powerful in the empire and they wield a lot of like political and religious and social power and so that's not a bad representation of women but it is definitely the only representation of women 
in the books, at least for a while. There is Paul's lover who dies in childbirth, and that's kind of the extent we learn about her. Um, Yeah. So, so, you know, there are issues with this text, but I don't think any of them are irredeemable or that the movie won't be absolutely just banging because that trailer, that trailer was tasty. That trailer was something that I needed in quarantine. That was a piece of art. So I have questions. Specifically, Dune, like I said, Dune the book is not really a Hollywood three-act screenplay sort of story. So I wonder what this movie is going to look like. And since everything is franchises nowadays, I really want to know what some of the sequels are going (laughs) to look like. Particularly God Emperor of Dune, where the main character is like a 5,000-year-old sandworm-human hybrid who is worshipped as a deity because he... (laughs) Yes, because he has now extended his lifespan and his cognitive abilities so much through his drug usage of the spice that he's he's basically he has like light yagami levels of like predictive powers where he can just see all the he's like doctor strange in infinity war where he can just see all the paths of humanity and he's trying to nudge them correctly down the like the best one and it's going to be real hard to have uh audiences emote with a seven meter cgi worm baby human (laughs) thing well, I'm super excited to see to see them try and jam that into a two-hour Hollywood film. Mm. They'll probably just reconstruct his character to have, like, you know, bug-like features on a human body. Possibly, but again, a lot of nerd, a lot of nerds will be really mad oh, if they sure, do that. Sure, but nerds are going to be mad no matter what you do with their shit. I know. So, uh, having now read the book. I offer my services as a as official Dune explainer for anyone who has Dune questions about anything in this stupid universe that is really hard to say with a straight face sometimes. But it is an enjoyable book. I enjoyed reading it. I personally love huge digressions into world building in books. So when the guy was talking about sand dunes or the history of Arrakis for like 20 pages, that's gravy for me. I loved that shit. I get that other people might not but I just slurp that up like a tasty soup. I can get into some good world building. I mean, I guess I don't mind Mm -hmm. if it's all just straight to plot, which is fine, but it definitely spices things up. (laughs) Yeah, I will will say this. uh, Something I genuinely did not like about the book is that everyone is always internal monologuing. We have a direct, like, what they are thinking about dialogue in the book. And they are always just immediately giving away their motivations <laughs> and their secrets to the reader. Like, immediately. For instance, early in the book, there is a traitor somewhere uh, in the, the like Atreides household. Someone who is betraying them to their enemies. And everyone is talking about trying to figure out who the traitor is. Who, who in this household can we not trust? Blah, blah, blah. And the minute you cut to the character that it is just like to the reader directly he's like i am the traitor it's me <laughs> why i am betraying them and here's all my motivations and my history and so we know this we the reader know who the traitor is 50 pages before any other character does wow. so like all of that tension is sort of immediately dissolved but that's so just like minor sort of like storytelling elements like that 
can be a little cheesy to the modern reader, I imagine. But I did, I did enjoy it. I do not regret reading it. And yeah, if you, if you want to talk to me about the Spice or the Landsgrad or the the Kwisatz Haderach or or Thumpers, so badly to talk about Dune. Or the Sand Trout. No, I just I love I love world building. It's super fascinating to me. And Dune's a wacky one. Dune, you can see its influence in things like Star Trek, in things like Star Wars, in in a lot of sci-fi that came after it. So, yeah. All I know about Dune is I saw a like movie with Sting when I was like 13. <laughs> um, I don't really remember a lot of it. I remember being very sexually confused because he's just in a Speedo. He's in a Space Speedo! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's weird. Um, and also that when I was a baby, my dad was obsessed with Dune. And so we had a cat that my dad named Arrakis, and my mom kept forgetting the name of our cat, so we just had to call it Rack. So, that's it. That's all I got. Oh, I do have one more hashtag problematic element about Dune. There we go. Uh, so the villain in the book is, like, one of the most outrageously evil characters I think I've ever encountered. Like, cartoonishly, incompetently evil. And every time, again, there's a scene with him, he's just sort of, like, guffawing to himself over his own sick, evil nature and all that. So much so that it is uh, very much implied in the book that he is a gay pedophile. Oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, very much, like, right up short of saying it, he is always talking about his usage of young boys. <laughs> So that that is something I hope gets cut from the movie, because that's a very, very, very dated take, Frank mm. Herbert. Yeah, we can do without it. Mm -hmm. Again, he's already... <laughs> the, the evil family is a bunch of, like, fat, diseased redheads. <laughs> Who are also gay child molesters. Oh, no! <laughs> so, yeah, so there's not a whole lot of subtlety in, in the villain characters at all, at least in the first book. But that may change in, in the subsequent sequels. I don't know. I just know that the villains were basically a plot device in the book to just sort of have there be something to struggle against. Well, because the whole point is the dunes. Yeah, it, it was very obvious in the book which elements of his world Frank Herbert was fascinated with and which ones he was not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's mostly it. I am very excited to go see it because I really love Denis Villeneuve. He's French-Canadian, and I, I stand everything he's ever done. He's very talented. He is. He has some absolutely phenomenal French-language films for my guess. I think I think his first English-language film was actually Prisoners, with Jake Gyllenhaal oh. and um, uh, fucking Wolverine. Hugh Jackman, that's his name. And then later he did Sicario, which is one of my all-time favorite films. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. He also has a phenomenal French language film called Polytechnique, which is about Canada's worst school shooting. Oh. Um, yeah, it was at the um, Ecole Polytechnique, which is a like polytechnical school in Montreal. It's at a college that took place uh, in 1989. And it's a really fascinating, both real real life event and a very, very good film. 
and that that's my favorite, I think, French-language film he's done. I'm going to have to watch that, because uh, the Canadian True Crime podcast I listened to covered the Polytech Massacre, and it was yeah, very interesting. It is, yeah. It was kind of this very proto-incel event, mm-hmm. which read in the context of today makes a whole lot more sense than it did in the late 80s. But yeah, his subsequent films like Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, I think are all just phenomenal. I think he's a phenomenal director. And he. I still have not seen the Blade Runner sequel, but I have heard that it is very good and I would like to. And so I am very hopeful that if someone can wrangle the the many-headed hydra that is Dune into an understandable two-hour film, it'll be him. Well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. It is a star-studded cast. It is. Good God. I'm excited. So yeah, briefly, Game of Thrones and Lawrence of Arabia in space with some psychedelic drug usage sprinkled on. Well, before we get into the big drama of the episode... First off, Kendra, I appreciate mm. you explaining everything. Dune explaining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and because our next topic is going to be long, <laughs> let's cut to ads really quick. So, ads! And we're back! Um, okay, so y'all, there was a drama. That happened. It was quite a fracas. Do either of y'all, or I guess before all of this happened, did you know who Gabby Dunn was? Absolutely not a clue. Not. No, not at all. <laughs> Gabby Dunn, uh, she's a YouTuber. She started out at BuzzFeed. She's written some one-off articles for the big players, Vice, Cosmopolitan. She's been in the Boston Globe and the New York Times. For really, I went and spent time looking up these articles and they're all stupid, but that's neither here nor there. She left BuzzFeed, started a podcast about financial advice from somebody who's bad with money. And now she makes six figures a year because she's published some books about it. Her podcast does really well. Uh, Her co-host is Allison Raskin, I believe is her name. Uh, She was also just a minor YouTuber. And then they have a a YouTube show as well that's just sort of them being queer friends. (laughs) And I I don't want to shit on somebody for being successful, but I am a little annoyed at how quickly she became successful off just some kind of schluck. <laughs> I mean, that's tale as old as time. To be fair, it's pretty It's pretty sad that she's also, like, this whole thing started because she was upset that somebody was successful, so... Oh, yeah. like You have all the right to be upset that she's successful and bitching about somebody else for being successful. I, I had, like, <laughs> I had no idea who this woman was. And wanted to give her, like, a good faith benefit of the doubt that she was just genuinely confused or, you know, mystified by some things. But the more she doubled down and the more people pointed it out, it really did just read like a super jealous, petty tantrum that someone is more famous than her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, and so she was upset about the woman who wrote um, 
shit, what's it called? Is oh. Becky Abertali. She she wrote the book Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda because it's a it's a pun you see about homosexual agenda. Mm-hmm. The book that eventually got turned into the movie Love Simon, which is briefly a a coming out story about a young teenager named Simon who realizes he's gay in high school, and that's that's kind of it. It's a it's a very straightforward just sexual identity awakening book slash film. It's cute. I I never read it. The film was cute. Um, I don't, I guess I don't know how accurate it was. I've not seen the book or seen the book. I have not seen the film nor read the book. Uh, it looked totally boring and totally harmless. Yeah, I mean, same. It's very middle yeah, of the road. I didn't ever see the movie either, but it was like, I'm glad that exists for people. Oh yes, like, like in terms of, of queer media, queer representation, I am beyond happy that there exists a movie slash book that is just all about sort of demystifying, I guess, the the gay coming out story. I am, part of me is, is happy for that. Part of me is really suspicious of the fact that this main character of Simon is the most hetero-coded character ever in terms that he's an attractive white athlete from a middle-class suburban family who just happens to be gay. And people like that very much exist, yes, but it is also very much about making gayness as as straight palatable as possible, mm-hmm. which is a is a debate worth having. I think not not specifically over one text or one film, but about the larger representation of of queer people in in narrative that there there is this need to sort of defang the gay experience to make it palatable for straight people and the idea that gayness or queerness of any kind is really not that different man it's you're you're just the same as all of us when that's not true for a lot of queer people and their sexuality makes their lived experience very different from heterosexual lived experience but that's fine that's a whole other discourse for another day that has nothing to do with this very harmless little book about a normal kid just discovering he's gay and everyone is supportive and happy for him and there's no hate crimes and that's the end. Like, that, that is super harmless. And I'm, I'm glad that that exists. If there is a kid alive today who is going through a similar struggle and feels supported when they see that story represented. Oh yeah, I mean, I'd love to have had a very vanilla, it's okay to be gay style movie Mm -hmm. when I was a teen. That would have been super. I had, and the band played on, which was just about AIDS and everyone dying. I had had Boys Don't Cry, which ends in a hate crime. Boys Don't Cry, Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I still think is a wonderful, phenomenal film, and I love it. Very good. And it definitely didn't scare me i guess about queerness it just made me mistrustful of heteros which has not changed yet like heteros have not proved themselves trustworthy mm-hmm. so i'm i'm fine i'm fine with the lesson taught to me by that film mm-hmm. so at the time of publishing and throughout um when the film was released the author was not openly out and so 
a lot of her sexuality got dragged into the public arena of debate, and she was essentially bullied into yeah, coming sent, out. She was sent death threats, she was harassed for years about who are you, straight woman, to come into our space and tell queer stories. And basically it amounts... So recently, like over the weekend or something, she published an essay on Medium, essentially coming out as bisexual, saying that I am doing this mostly out of fear for my safety because mm -hmm. I have been harassed so much over my perceived straightness that I, I feel like I am now compelled to reveal my sexuality, which is just a hilarious bizarro world version of where I thought we would be in the year 2020. But it also very much tracks. Yeah. When I heard about it, was not immediately surprised, which I think surprised mm -hmm. me. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a very sad thing to hear, but it was not shocking. But so Gabby then decided to... To wade into the fray. Yeah. She had some thoughts. She had some spicy, muy caliente takes. <laughs> God, what was her first tweet? Because this is all, this all, the whole drama is over time. I am pulling it up for you. <laughs> uh, let's take a little look-see. Okay. So her first tweet in the initial thread reads thusly. Quote, I sort of think you shouldn't write slash create queer media and then feel weird when people ask if you're queer. That was, her, that was her first tweet on the matter. Subsequent tweet. Or maybe if you're grappling with it, it being your sexual identity, you should refrain from writing about the community you're not a part of <laughs> until you are comfortable being a part of it. It's great to want to write queer stories, do it from within once you're comfy and not as something you're entitled to. Subsequent tweet. <laughs> the queer community is amazing! Exclamation point. I welcome you! Two exclamation points. Come enjoy it before you write about it because we can tell. Subsequent tweet. <laughs> I just don't think you're the victim. When you put yourself into queer spaces, center yourself as a creator in that space, and then get weepy about having to explain that. New tweet. No one is obligated to come out, but no one is forcing you to write queer stories while closeted, question mark? If your own queerness <laughs> makes you uncomfortable. How can you, and more importantly, why would you want to spotlight that on yourself and center your work in queer spaces? Final tweet. Guys, this is about Becky Albertalli and people making money off queer stories, not you specifically exploring through art. LOL. <laughs> I love that she had to specifically say... No, 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 I'm just dragging I'm dragging one, one yeah. specific <laughs> queer creator, and not all of them. After just communicating to all of them. Yeah, that unless you're quote-unquote comfy with your sexual identity as a queer person, don't make or profit off queer art, because we can tell. Which, clearly you can't, because... You bullied this woman until she came out of the closet. She wasn't straight. You were questioning her, and you were bullying her until she admitted that she wasn't straight, 
so that you would stop bullying her, but you were initially bullying her because you thought she was straight, writing a queer story, but she wasn't. She was closeted. <laughs> well, and, like, here's the thing. Being closeted is not the same as struggling with your sexuality. People, many people, have just perfect clarity about their own sexual identity and choose to remain closeted for a variety of reasons. And Gabby, for the whole goddamn day, as people were explaining to her why her take was bad, and as she kept reframing her argument as sort of an indictment of, like, the publishing system that sort of requires authors to be closeted, maybe... That's sort of, she took a stab at that, but she wasn't really successful at reframing her argument that way. Because again, these tweets are still up. She has not deleted them. No. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, Gabby is very much conflating remaining in the closet with quote-unquote struggling with your sexuality, like in a weird gay panic sort of way. And... No matter how many people, and thousands of people did, tried to explain to her that that is in fact not the same thing, she absolutely would not hear it, and now is apparently pretending that this whole thing never happened. My favorite, though, wasn't even that she kept conflating struggling with your identity and being closeted. Uh... She can. She thinks that being closeted and being straight are the same. Yeah, I noticed that. was my that. favorite tweet because somebody said, "But she wasn't straight. She was exploring herself. Why do this? Why attack your own like this?" And the she they are referring to mm-hmm. is the author Becky Albertalli. She was not straight while writing mm-hmm. these books. She was closeted or questioning. We mm-hmm. don't know. We don't know. But. Gabby Dunn's response to this tweet was, but she was, meaning that she was straight when she got all of these things. And that's something we have to talk about. What out or visibly queer authors was passed up for these same things. And uh, bad take, Gabby. That's a bad take, Gabby. It's a bad take. (laughs) You're going going to take jail for that one, girl. I think we we have not yet clarified. Gabby Dunn is in fact queer. Yes, she she's bi. She yes. is bisexual. Okay, so yes, for the record, this is a queer person looking at a queer person bullied into coming out and saying that's good actually, and she shouldn't complain about these questions about her sexuality if she wants to be at the gay market, like she says, selling gay wares for gay dollars. <laughs> The way Gabby seems to assume publishing works is that Becky Albertalli ran up on a bunch of queer people, mugged them, and then slipped copies of her books into their purses and backpacks. Best mugging ever! And then fled into the night. Like, that's, that's how her books sold. And again, she seems to place the onus on this author for her work getting popular. 
which like is not how publishing works again the fact that people read this book and it resonated with them and they encouraged other people to buy it and more people did and it got popular enough to the point where it could have a successful movie adaptation none of that was something becky albertalli did that's just sort of good luck Mm -hmm. on her part that her Mm -hmm. work resonated with so many people Probably because she was queer. Like, what, did she, like, hold booksellers at gunpoint and tell them to buy thousands and thousands of copies of her book to ensure that she would be centered as a creator in this queer space? Well, and the fact that Gabby seems to really think that, you know, or at least in her backtracking imply, that so many other queer authors were passed up so that Becky could write this story. But Becky's queer, so... A queer author did no, publish she's this not visibly story. queer, as she said in her tweet. How many out or visibly queer authors were passed up uh-huh. so that this could get published? She has to have like a. She has know, to have an undercut and pastel hair. And a rainbow tattoo on her face. And a septum piercing, and all of these other like queer cultural identifiers, I guess, that the kids have nowadays. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm very visibly queer. I don't think anybody has met me in the last ten years and been like, hmm. She's straight. She's probably straight. <laughs> like, you have a very butch I'm, aesthetic. I'm very, I'm very butchy. And I also can't go ten minutes without mentioning how gay I am. Mm-hmm. This is how I am. Mm-hmm. This is just how I choose to be. But I don't understand why that has to be the only way. Like, typically, my girlfriend is the opposite. She doesn't mention it a lot to people not involved in her life. I basically am like, hi, I'm gay, but, you know. I will mention that I have a girlfriend. Yeah. Again, unless directly questioned. Yeah. It's not something that I'm not out about. It's just also something that uh, is, yeah, not a conversation starter for me like it is for Kelty. Yeah. I also, this is this is just secondhand, but... I've had many people tell me that they would not have guessed that I am queer because I have long hair. Yep. Yeah, I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I've heard, I've heard that more than once. And apparently that's the thing. That's the thing that just fools both straight and gay people into into thinking that I am straight. I mean, I, I don't hit most of the precursors for, uh, or the requirements for being visibly out. I have pastel hair and I have tattoos. But I have long hair, and I typically wear acrylic nails, and I wear a lot of dresses, and I don't know, very femme. Mm -hmm. I'm very femme. And that in itself is not being visibly queer. Being visibly queer is is being me and nothing else. Well, not even that. I think it is just this sort of rhetorical device that gets used in these sort of gatekeeping discourses to mean whatever the speaker wants it to mean so that they can look at anything they disagree with and say that's not visibly queer enough yeah. because there's no there's no agreed upon definition of what visibly queer means no. you could ask 10 different gay people and 10 different straight people and you will get 20 different answers mm-hmm. that is not something that has an agreed upon cultural definition so when it gets utilized in conversations like this it's usually just as a like form of goalpost moving for the speaker because now gabby gabby is dissatisfied with the fact that a queer woman published a queer story because she wasn't visibly queer enough Mm -hmm. and you know if this woman had let's say a pixie cut and a leather jacket 
and Doc Martin's on while publishing this book, that probably wouldn't have been visibly queer enough either. She would have had to be like a full on leather dyke. Mm-hmm. So it's just a form of goalpost moving in these weird gatekeeping discourses about who counts massive air quotes counts as being visibly queer. Yeah. So should we, should we uh, go on about uh, the initial tweet anyway? Yes. Let's okay. back on track. <laughs> so, after this initial thread, many, many, many people either reply to her or quote retweet her saying, Hey Gabby, this is a really bad take. This is the same sort of gatekeeping and like vaguely radical feminist ideology used against trans people, used against bisexual people about not conforming to queerness in an appropriate way. Like while closeted, if you were quote unquote passing as straight or cis, then you were effectively straight or cis and you didn't suffer discrimination the same way that out people did or whatever. So a lot of people were saying that to her. A lot of people were mentioning how fucking privileged an assumption it is that any person can be out at any time. Lots of people were saying to her that to be closeted is not the same thing as to struggle with your identity. Just so, so many problems with this assessment of hers. She doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't give a single solitary fuck about what anyone is saying. Well, in, in the first wave, so many people seem to have started off their quote tweets or their replies with, you know, I see what you're trying to say mm-hmm. or not to be uncivil. <laughs> and Gabby just straight up tells these people to go to hell. Yeah. Well, not in so many words. But. No, does not literally say that. But that is very much the, the essence of a lot of her replies. No, my favorite thing that she does is she will keep quote retweeting people who like dismantle her argument and say good point or actually even worse it's more just valid point Mm. and then just kind of doesn't go any further with that yes she's just kind of like that's valid but i still think that you should be harassed and bullied doesn't doesn't then like carry on this critical analysis to her own argument. No. And so, yeah, a lot of people are like, who are you to decide who is and isn't queer enough to hang out at the queer table? And so after that, she says, when you become a millionaire off queer stories while closeted, then I have questions about why you chose to center yourself in a community and put a spotlight on your queerness for money and then be aghast when asked if you're a member of the same community. That's all. Which is already a huge backtrack because that's in fact not at all what she was saying no because again she has this implicit belief that the author becky albertali is somehow in control of how popular her books got and that she on purpose dominated queer ya literature for a couple years i don't want it to come off in her defense because it's not meant to be there is this mentality amongst YouTubers of monetizing everything, especially if you came from the early BuzzFeed generation. Mm -hmm. So you learned how to monetize your identity, everything. Yeah, exactly. And books are very popular. YouTubers will put out books 
sell it off of their personality. And it's it's nothing of substance. It's them saying, I need to find another way to monetize what I'm okay. doing. So I'm going to put some thoughts on paper and publish there- it. Which is what everybody does. Typically, authors don't just throw that out there. Or not every author does. <laughs> expecting to get rich. <laughs> They're not actively trying to monetize this thought they had. They are putting out a story. Gay YA novels is a really shitty get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah, like... it's not gonna get you anywhere 99.999% of the time. Gabby also seems to have this thought that this was all... This was all an effort to make bank. Yeah. Like, gay YA novels are just raking in... Like, she repeatedly says that the author is a millionaire. She does not cite that assertion no. anywhere. I don't know how she knows how much money Becky Albertalli is is pulling in from, like, royalties or this, this movie deal. I don't know. But no one gets into queer children's lit publishing for the money, Gabby. No. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> After being gently encouraged, let's say, to apologize and delete for the hurtful things she had said gabby responds i'm not backtracking at all she is but i stand by my point and i disagree and i'm allowed to disagree we have different opinions i'm not going to delete or backtrack that'd be counterproductive so i need everyone to pay really close attention here because this is exactly the same rhetorical move that the alt-right uses it is my opinions are mine and I'm allowed to have them even if my opinions are harmful to queer people. So what she doesn't seem to realize is that she is in fact delegitimizing queer people in the closet, especially young people who probably follow her because she is, as you said, like an early Buzzfeed generation YouTuber and her target demo is probably teenagers. And the fact that she doesn't seem to have any fucking idea about the hurtfulness of her comments by saying queer people in the closet are not allowed to make queer art. But yeah, she has a tweet where she full-on claims that closeted queer people are in fact straight. I cannot fucking believe that (laughs) these words came out of her mouth. And she is non-apologetic and utterly obstinate in learning anything about why that might be hurtful or damaging or even just a shitty thing to do. Like, obstinate. I I genuinely, when I was reading into this, it struck a nerve because as you both know, I am closeted with members of my family Mm -hmm. for reasons that I won't get into. (laughs) Um, But I don't feel like because I'm not out there waving my rainbow flags and, you know, tattooing dyke across my forehead, that makes me any less queer. <laughs> and hearing that from somebody with a platform yeah. was very upsetting. And, of course, my first reaction was to be upset. But then my second reaction was immediately to think, God, this woman has young fans. Mm-hmm. And what if they're not out to their family or out in general or you know, suddenly they're going to be uncomfortable. And that was my big, my big emotional reaction was not even for me, but just for her young fans. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. same. Because I didn't come out of the closet until I was 20. And that's not even, I wasn't even, that wasn't fully out of fear. That was also me just being like, 
just figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually a line in, um, but I'm a cheerleader that helped a little bit kind of push me into figuring it out where she says, you think other girls are having the thoughts you are, but they're not. And I was like, Oh, and I didn't even get to that movie until high school. So I didn't even realize it. I wasn't trying to convince myself I wasn't. It just wasn't even on my radar. I consumed a lot of queer media. I just thought I was straight because I thought that that's what... straight is the default yeah. in our society still. That's what heteronormativity is. It's not just a theory <laughs> buzzword that you throw around on Twitter to look intelligent. It actually goddamn means something. Yeah. And that was even the point of Love, Simon. The tagline is, why is straight the default? I haven't even seen the movie, and I know this. And this woman is trying to take down the author and doesn't even seem to have noticed anything. Yeah, like, her just total willful obstinance to understand the points that people are bringing to her and raising to her is genuinely the most unseemly thing about this whole snafu like just her total obliviousness to why people seem to be upset i don't know if it's genuine or disingenuous i could see it being both ways like she's just a complete naive idiot and doesn't understand why people are mad or she's trolling i could see both being true but that element is the most frustrating thing about this whole debacle just that she completely was unwilling to even entertain the idea that she was wrong. Well, she even has a tweet about this, like, about thinking that she's wrong. And somebody responded, literally no one is mad about the fact that people disagree with one another. Everyone is mad that you were telling closeted queer people to keep their heads down and not make queer art unless they want to get outed. And her response is not outed, but yes. No. She has more to this tweet, but I'd like to just pause there for a second. She just doesn't want to own the very violent implication of forcibly outing people. And then she says, I think if you make art about a community, that community has the right to either not engage with it at all because it is not by a queer writer based on their knowledge, criticize it for the same reason, or express skepticism about the art. Now, this is also just interesting to me because there's so many reasons I can't even choose one to argue immediately. It's not really skepticism about the art that you're arguing. You are arguing the skepticism of the creator. So that's not, that doesn't really coincide with anything that you've said so far. But also, I just want to say, as a queer person who is visibly queer, thank you, Gabby, uh, for validating my opinion at all. I want straight people to write about queer people. I want that to be a mainstream thing. I don't understand why we're trying to fight against that. The whole point is that we want our acceptance to be mainstream, right? We're not fighting to just keep fighting point, right? Or am I missing this? Like, am I going to pride parades and point? Well, I think, like, she, if I am putting myself in Gabby's stupid head for a second, I think that she would argue that 
since queerness is a dis- or queer people are a discriminated class, like rather than be like corporatized, like there's corporate pride now, you should keep queer media and ethics for queer people and not for a mainstream audience. If that is her argument, she is creating a false dichotomy where there are no mainstream queer people or that queer people can... She Again, the, the main problem with Gabby's argument seems to be that she is blaming this individual author for the existence of heteronormativity because she decided to remain closeted and not the other way around as it so obviously is that this author decided to remain closeted because of heteronormativity. Yes, I'm sure it is easier to get your book published as a straight-appearing woman than as a queer-appearing woman. I'm sure that's a truth. That is not Becky Albertalli's fault. No. That is the fault of larger heteronormativity practices in not just the publishing industry, but fucking society. Like, she is holding Becky Albertalli directly responsible for A, her own success while closeted, and B, remaining closeted and therefore perpetuating heteronormativity. Gabby's problem seems to be, why is it easier to publish a book while appearing straight? And lays that problem at the feet of a single author. I asked her! Without without revealing myself, I was in those Twitter threads fighting with her. Mm-hmm. And she directly interacted with me a few times. And I said, Gabby, what are you doing? How are you getting this so backwards? And she was like, that's a fair point. And then never developed anything more critical about her actions than that. So that is what I took away from it. She is identifying an example of heteronormativity adversely affecting queer authors and mistakenly deciding it is the fault of a single human being and not the entrapment of our society at large. And I don't understand how one person, one queer person who is supposedly woke about this sort of thing can get it so goddamn wrong. I'm done. (laughs) It's the same exact mentality that I see a lot where it's like, you must be this traumatized to write about traumatic events. And that's fucked to have that mentality because what that says is, please disclose to me your traumas before engaging in art that may seem like... That that may incorporate those traumas. Yeah. Yes. Did you see her tweet about that? Yes, I did. And I, I call bullshit. For, she just says, like... For the audience, Bliss, please read the tweet. So somebody poses to Gabby, not trying to flame here or be uncivil, do you hold the same view for survivors of sexual abuse or people with mental illnesses? Should they have to out themselves? Which is a short way to yeah. say that, you know. And Gabby's reply is... Also true, and a good point. (laughs) Which you'll notice is not an answer. (laughs) No. No. But then she goes on to say, I hold queerness as different than trauma. Maybe other people don't, but I also 
don't feel comfortable writing characters with, uh, with bipolar, you know, bipolar disorder is what she means, until I felt okay answering if I was bipolar, because I knew bipolar people would be skeptical and rightfully nervous. Which, as a bipolar person, I promise you, that's not what I'm thinking when I read a story about a bipolar person. I'm thinking, oh, hey, there's a character that I can identify with. And, like, so she says that, like, her argument is that I don't hold queerness and, like, trauma or whatever it is she says. Yes. Um, And, you know, that's great for you. Uh, Most of the world, because of the heteronormativity incorporates a lot of trauma into their queerness. So, um, you know, so that's just wrong. Her attitude towards this seems so disengaged is the word I want to use. I refuse to believe she was never closeted. There's just a point in your life where you're closeted because you don't even you don't even realize queerness is possible. No baby comes out the pussy with an undercut and a pride pin. No. <laughs> and again, like her discussing of like bipolar and how she wouldn't write a bipolar character until she was comfortable answering if she was bipolar, that's great for her. I'm glad she came to that realization. That is definitely not a standard that should be universal. Like, again, I do believe there is a certain amount of care and research that has to go in portraying identities and lived experiences that are not your own, obviously. But I don't think that is the same as having to eviscerate every notion of your identity for the approval of jackasses on Twitter. Yeah. Like, to hire a sensitivity writer is great, and a practice more people should engage in. But should you then have to, like, clarify in your fucking author's note, being like, this character is black, I am in fact white, but, you know, I had a sensitivity reader, or I am straight, and this character is gay, and I had a sensitivity reader, or I am gay, and this character is straight. Like, what... Well, how much of your identity must you reveal in regarding what you write? Because apparently she thinks that all queer people, when engaging with media, just go in highly suspicious of the author and assuming the worst and do extensive background checks before deciding to purchase a book. And like, I have read stuff that I thought was really, you know, I'm like, that person has never met a gay woman in their life or whatever, or that person has never been to that part of the world that they're (laughs) writing about. So if I find myself like disappointed with the way an author has portrayed something, I am just disappointed with that author because they're a bad writer. I am not disappointed with them Mm -hmm. because they are, you know, straight or not mentally ill and portraying it the wrong way. Because I have read bad writing by queer authors Mm -hmm. and I have read bad writing by mentally ill authors and I have read bad writing, you know, by Canadian authors describing Canada or whatever. And that is not something you are immune from just because you belong to a to a discriminated group or a prejudiced group. You are capable of producing bad queer art as a queer person all on your own. I think that amounts to bad writing. And yes, I don't think that straight people should just barge into queer stories and assume they know what's what. But I also don't think that them being straight inherently means they can't understand anything about the queer experience, which is such a varied and diverse experience already. 
there's no one queer experience that's sort of the fucking point, Gabby. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I've read mm-hmm. female characters written by female authors that weren't good characters. What bullshit are you thinking that you just think that you get to put a stamp on everybody's queer approved? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to. Must like, be this queer to ride. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I don't know. I'm queer, and uh, I I still do research because my experience isn't universal. My experience isn't the only experience. Hell, I write a lot of queer men, and I'm not one, so I have to do research on that front. Like, because where is the limit now? Like, why should anybody be allowed to write about anything except their own exact experience? Let's all just publish our diaries and move on. I am okay with having straight people write queer characters because I want to see more queer characters and more queer stories. And there's obviously a difference between being so stereotypical or wrong that it's offensive and writing a good character. But if they're not allowed to do it, (laughs) then it's never going to get good. It's like so many early queer narratives... Uh, from before our time and growing up, ended in tragedy. The queer character always died or got sick. Because that was the only aspect to the Mm. queer experience that straight people knew. And in the 90s, gayness became the new, you know, Uh in vogue thing for American capitalistic culture. Kinda, yeah. It had its moment in the sun. Yeah, it it definitely. It became the, like, the new edgy thing. Yeah. Like, if you were really avant-garde and dangerous, you would talk about gayness in the 90s or whatever. And then, you know, came the stereotypes. And I understand not wanting to go back into that, but I think it was a stepping stone in the right direction for people to be able to publish stories like Love, Simon. You have to bring them into the room before you can make them, you know, heteronormative or whatever. I, I argue that, like, a lot of stereotypes, uh, fit me. <laughs> like, dismissing stereotypes entirely in your writing, it mm-hmm. becomes hard to even relate to for anyone. Which isn't really an argument being made here, it's just something that I've grown tired of seeing people be like, I'm sick of the stereotype of this queer character, and I'm like, oh. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, so can I, can I, uh, venture into the has-been hotel corner for a second? Uh, yeah, I also, I have a, I have an article that I'd like to mention that sort of touches on that later, but I will let you, I will let you go first, Bliss. Well, so in has-been hotel, the animated, uh, now greenlit series by Vivian Medrano. Hooray! Yeah. It's, I very much enjoy it. The fandom is all over the place. <laughs> well, and there is a character in the show. His name is Angel Dust. He is a <laughs> sinner who is in hell. He happens to be gay and a sex worker. In hell or also in real life? That is not clear yet. He okay. came from a gangster family. He's an Italian mafia from the 1930s in New York. So yeah. probably not, but maybe. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. We'll see. Uh, stay tuned, everybody. But he, in hell, is a gay sex worker. And there has become a discourse over whether or not that is representation that the queer community needs, or if it's offensive somehow. For the record, 
I know gay men who act the way that Angel Dust does. That's not a completely fictionalized uh, stereotype that she's drawing from. God, no, yes. <laughs> and I know for a fact that, you know, maybe maybe the Puritans don't know, but there are such things as gay prostitutes. <laughs> yes. Sex work is work, and it is valid work, and it needs to be destigmatized. But the fact that you're one of many, there are a lot of gay characters in this cartoon, one of many characters mm -hmm. happens to be a gay sex worker, you're gonna say, oh, problematic, you know, now none of this could be applicable to my experience or, you know, what I deem acceptable. Mm -hmm. I feel that in this. It's the, you know, if you don't fit my cookie cutter idea of what is queer and, you know, what you're allowed to have, then you can't have it at all. Mm -hmm. Which, I'll make the argument even that a lot of media that I watch or enjoy will have, like, queer characters that don't fit my stereotype. Like, uh, Teen Wolf, actually, was great in its idea of living in a world without homophobia and having a queer character, and that was great. I thought that was really sweet and really cute and really well-written, considering uh, Teen Wolf. But saying that we should remove trauma entirely, because this is something that I've seen a lot, we should remove trauma entirely from the queer narrative. Uh, sounds to me like you're wanting to forget those people exist. Like I said earlier, a lot of queer people have a lot of trauma that they interlace with their sexuality. And because growing up gay in a heteronormative world is traumatic. It's traumatic. Surprise! And to just deny that that happens and make all of your queer characters happy, fluffy time, cutesy, like, I'm not saying to do away with that attitude entirely. I'm just saying you can't do away with the opposite. You can't say stop making queer characters with trauma in their past. If you don't like it, don't watch it. Nobody is trying. Nobody has a gun to your head. It's mm -hmm. fine. But I want to see characters like me. And I'm happy. I am incredibly happy that there are queer kids right now who don't have that level of trauma in their life. That If you didn't have to deal with that, that's great. And I want you to write your happy, fun time stories of acceptance. But don't tell me I can't write mine. Or that's don't, not fair. Don't pretend that that's the only narrative that exists now. There are still places in the world, places in your country, where it is traumatic to be out and to come out to your family and to live as an out queer person. It is dangerous and scary and bad sometimes. And people cope with that trauma in all kinds of ways. And that's fine, man. You know, like, well, I was even saying earlier, like the thing that sort of bugs me about Love, Simon. Again, this is perhaps an unfair take because I have not read the book or seen the film. Uh, j it's just that the character of Simon is, you know, as normal and American as apple pie. He is a handsome white athlete in high school who is adored by everyone. His friends love him. Teachers love him. His family loves him. And he just is gay. 
and there's nothing weird or upsetting about it, and nobody minds, from what I understand. Like, he doesn't really deal with much homophobia. That is just really not representative of what a lot of queer people experience when coming out, or how they even act. There are a lot of people who don't conform to, to gender expressions or gender stereotypes, and there are a lot of people who struggle with their identity and it's not a happy thing for them to realize or to come out with or there are a lot of really feminine gay men like in in reacting to the over-the-top femme fairy stereotype we have now created this hypothetical gay man who is the most masculine you know figure of all time and super super non-threatening and so we have now like conversely erased gender non-conforming queer men who exist and are allowed to exist and don't have to be masculine in order for their identities to be valid and yeah like i okay so i there was this article uh last month that was published in vice talking about a video game called tell me why uh i have not played this game but this article had me fucking laughing because basically the review is about how this game handles its representation specifically about trans people and the author themselves is trans basically in real time throughout this review the author is struggling with why they don't like this game even though it has perfect representation and it's hysterical to read because the author like apparently the the main character of the main characters of the game are a set of twins one of whom is a trans man and throughout the game the trans character is like never dead named the trans character expresses no difficulty with their gender identity with their coming out process with acceptance in their remote alaskan town um no, no one ever questions them or or struggles with their new identity or anything like that. And apparently in the, like, publicity material for this game, there's, like, a, a lot of reminders of how to properly, you know, talk about trans people. And even that, like, you know, being trans is not the, is not the result of trauma or something like that. Like, in the press material for this game... Yeah, like, the, the author of this article is basically struggling in real time to understand why that they don't find that fulfilling. Because that's supposedly, quote, good representation. The conclusion they come to is the game refuses to be daring. The game refuses to reckon with its own difficult subject matter and trauma and stuff like that. Here's a quote from the article where they basically break down this problem that they have sort of found themselves in. Quote, wanting to get it right, meaning representation, is its own form of safety. When it comes to representation, we've seen so many outcomes that are wrong so many times. From white actors playing black characters, which are often thoughtlessly crafted, to Blizzard's literal cow people Indian stereotypes, We've had heteronormative relationships forced on players who are explicitly queer. There are so many templates for how to fail at representation in stunning and spectacular ways. The backlash can be swift, tremendous, and mar a successful launch. 
but setting up representation as a binary where one can either be right or wrong with their depictions is misguided and naive. Experiences of these identities are as varied as the people who live them. So, yeah, like, that's the issue I take when people are just harping on this idea of good representation. There is no such thing, and we should not pretend that there is some goal to strive for of, like, perfect representation, because then it just ends up being completely defanged and unrelatable to no one, because no one has a perfect experience with their identity. Even, like Kelty said, even the whitest, straightest, cis-normative man in the world struggles with his identity. And the idea that there is some mythic good representation for our minority characters to achieve is stupid and limiting and we shouldn't do it because then even even when you encounter that like personally when i encounter it as a woman as a queer person it feels so unrelated to my lived experience that i might as well be watching something about an alien i struggle because there is not a queer archetype for how i identify i am not lucky enough as kelty to Check all the boxes. (laughs) And it's frustrating. It is frustrating not to see myself represented in media. But I understand that no two people are exactly the same. Uh, Even Kelty and I, who have a freakish brain bond, are Mm. still two different people with different experiences and different personalities. (laughs) That doesn't mean that there isn't good representation out there, though. It means I am a person and this character is supposed to be a person and we are allowed to be different while also being the same you know or that representation is varied and there is no there is no one right representation is what i am trying to say is representation is is just that it is representing something as it may or may not happen in real life and the only way you can do that wrongly is to reinforce untrue narratives and power dynamics about how discriminated peoples exist and operate. Like, I don't know about you, but I live in a world with homophobia. And so when I, when I come up against these queer narratives, like they're fantasies or they're just slight sort of fantasies like Teen Wolf, where it's like, this world is pretty much like yours. Just imagine if there's no homophobia. That's great, but I don't relate to that. I might enjoy it, but I don't relate to it in a way that it mirrors my experience. That's something more kind of aspirational and like, oh, I hope we get there one day. But that's not something I live with. I do want to read this quote again from the article. So Tyler Ronan, the character, the trans character in this game, Tyler Ronan is a transgender man, which is daring, Or it would be, even when trans characters exist in video games, typically it's only trans women on display. But as with everything else, it's too safe. I know it will resonate with other critics, and that many trans players will respond positively to it. They are not wrong to do that. But the representation in Tell Me Why also comes across as too practice, almost unctuous. I have no doubt that this comes from a sincere desire to, quote, get it right. Just like the overly eager FAQ they released promising that no one gets hurt and they followed all the right steps because it does. It hits every checkmark as though the developers were quietly lurking through years of discourse, compiling data to produce the correct results. This feels desperate for approval 
for someone to say, this is how you tell a trans story correctly. So yeah, I, I don't know what this... I don't know what anyone hopes to achieve by striving for perfect, safe representation. Because I don't even live in a perfect, safe world. And I'm never going to. And I guess for some people it's comforting to imagine a world that that is perfectly safe for them. But it's not for me. And I'm glad that they have that if they need that. But that's that's very much not what I'm after. And I don't want my experience defanged or made more palatable or normalized in some way to be more mainstream. That's the opposite of what I want, actually. I want stories about freaks and weirdos who refuse to conform. And I want stories about people who are mad and upset and fight like hell. Like, that's... I don't ever want to be placated with a sense of normalcy. I mean, again, I am glad for whatever young person or potentially not young person, reads Love, Simon and finds value and meaning in it. I am glad it exists for queer people who want that story. Yeah. It is very safe and vanilla, and that is fine. Stories are allowed to be that. <laughs> and I think it was absolutely horrendous for Gabby to act the way she did on Twitter. Not that that's unusual for Twitter. But I think a big thing that frustrates me with YouTubers is they have this perceived celebrity and they both know it and then forget to act like they have a platform and what they say affects other people. Especially YouTubers with young fan bases. <laughs> that just drives me up the wall. If you want to be a YouTuber and cater to family-friendly, safe content, then walk the walk. Don't drag authors and say they deserved to be bullied into coming out because Queer Spaces is only for queer people and only if they meet all the requirements. Yeah, like, I mean, I gotta say, without queer media, I wouldn't have even realized I was gay and I probably would have just been some, some queer politician's beard and thought that that was what happiness was. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and there should be a diverse amount of stories, because no one's lived experience is exactly the same as somebody else's. So everybody has the opportunity to learn and grow from the stories that we put out there. But apparently, that is too much to ask of Gabby. And I'm glad that gatekeeping is being called out more. No kidding. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that everyone in the world told her what a bad take it was and no one came to her defense. <laughs> no. I think one of my favorite... And this wasn't even in reply to Gabby. It was about Gabby, but, you know. Uh, Vivian Medrano tweeted, and it just, it was the next day, and it made me laugh so hard. Because it was Vivian and her whole deal going on with Angel Dust. I don't know who needs to hear this, but you do not need to be out to write or explore your queerness in stories. Your characters don't represent all of any specific identity or experience. They're yours. Don't let bad faith or privileged naysayers stop you from writing for you. Which I think was a very well uh, put response. Well worded response. Very Absolutely. Well response. That's soft. Yeah. Thank you. I like her a lot. She's very sweet. Uh, as far she, as I know. <laughs> I mean, her, her Twitter is, at least, yeah. Uh, so, yay, Vivian. Gabby, you suck. <laughs> Basically, yeah. 
Anyway. More oh, sirens. <laughs> the cops are gonna go arrest Gabby now. Thank you. But yeah. I mean, unless either of y'all have anything else to add, I think we have talked about the thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we talked about the thing. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Bliss Fully Aware. Uh, if you would like to find us online, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Blissfully Show. I have been Bliss. And uh, don't let people gatekeep you. Fucking the queer communities for everybody. But, like, I feel like if you're watching our show, you're not the kind of person who would gatekeep anyone. You better not be. Otherwise, get the fuck out. <laughs> Well, we will see you guys next time. Oh. Oh, what? Sorry. I just, in all of this, I completely forgot. Uh, I'm so fucking mad that we covered the Omegaverse lawsuit, like, literally two weeks before it got resolved. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God. We have to do a follow-up eventually. I was going to say next week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe not next week before I get all my, like, shit in order about it. But yeah, because now there's finally a resolution to this case to talk about. God, that's so exciting. It's so dumb. <laughs> um, oh my god. Okay, well, thanks everybody. Bye! Alright, bye! bye. That is not... That is irrelevant to my Dune Corner talk. Well, fine. No Game of Thrones in the Dune Corner. Mm-mm. That's funny.